0: I'm your host, Joel, and today we're focusing on Genesis 9 through 14. Genesis 9 through 14 contains a a ton of different important stories in our tradition, uh, all of which, broadly speaking, focus on God's covenant. God's covenant as it applies to a particular people that then goes out to the whole world. Uh, A couple uh, bookkeeping pieces, Um, I want to give a note to those of you who uh, would prefer to listen to this podcast on like your phones or something else, you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or on Spotify. Uh, If you're using any of those, you just go to the search and search for Old Testament Reading Podcast. I've got uh, the feed going through there uh, if you prefer not to listen to it on your desktop or go through Safari or Chrome or whatnot. And if you've got any questions about that, of course, you can email me. Uh, Also, uh, another note, some of you have utilized the Google Form uh, I have out there to ask questions. Uh, If you have questions as you're reading, you can always uh, reach out via that Google Form or send me an email. Uh, I check the Google Form regularly. You can find it in the show notes. You can also just go to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y, slash ask hyphen O-T. That's capital A-S-K hyphen, capital O, capital T. That'll take you to a Google form where you can ask some questions about what you're reading. So I mentioned at the beginning that these chapters really get at the idea of God as covenant maker. God seems to be somebody who can't help but make a covenant with the people that God cares about. And in this case, God cares about the world. So we see this first covenant hit right at the beginning of Genesis 9, throughout Genesis 9, where God's talking with Noah and uh, reaffirms some of the commands uh, and and some of the truths about creation, uh, reaffirms humanity's vocation as the tenders of the earth, tenders of creation as those who are made in God's image, in God's likeness. This is where we also see God putting the bow in the sky. We called it a rainbow, but the ancients may have understood it as a weapon of war that God had, uh, and that the, seeing the bow in the sky means it's not in God's hand. God uh, has put down the, the weapons used to wage war against humanity, and instead God is uh, uh, trying to covenant with humanity in order to make the world a better place. We also see, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit here, we'll get to the intervening chapters in a minute, but in chapter 12, we see this covenant with Abram that God makes. Now, those of you who've read the Old Testament before uh, and who know about the the person Abraham uh, may not know that Abram and Abraham are the same person, and we'll get into that, uh, I believe, next week. We'll see Abram's name being changed to Abraham. But this covenant God makes with Abram in chapter 12 like the covenant with Noah, is designed to bless the whole world. Uh, uh, God says to Abram, uh, I'm going to bless you so you can be a blessing. Those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. Uh, So in in, in both cases, there is this focus on the individual. God is giving this blessing. God is giving this covenant to an individual whom God has appointed, either Noah or Abraham. But the, uh, the span and the focus of, of God's covenant is with the entire creation, the entire world. Um, and, and I think that we can't miss either of those. God begins by working in our own individual hearts But God is not content to work within our individual hearts. God desires to mend relationships in and around our communities as well. Okay, so before God calls Abram, there's some stories that maybe some questions would arise for you in these stories. Like what's going on with Ham, Noah, and Canaan in this strange story after the flood where Noah uh, drinks too much wine. Perhaps uh, this is the first time wine has been made. Some folks speculate uh, that, that Noah was the first um, uh, wine vin- vineyardist, winery maker, I, I don't know the, the term there. Um, but Noah goes in and seems to get drunk. Ham goes in, uncovers his father's nakedness, and then brags about it to his brothers. Um, there's, there's an article that I've attached to the show notes here. One of the ideas that that folks have is that Ham may have... Uh, the, let me back up. The term to uncover the, the nakedness of, of the father uh, elsewhere refers in Scripture to um, actually... Uh, having some sort of intercourse or some sort of uh, uh, sexual relations with the father's wife uh, because wives were understood at that point to be the property of husbands and so there's some scholars who think that well what's going on here is that ham is trying to weasel himself into sort of the royal line if you think about how uh, the the royal line happens uh, uh, in, in, in the contemporary times like with the the queen of England and and all the princes that are, that are associated with it. Um, it it tracks with a, a, a certain type of lineage where the youngest son is is kind of hosed um, more frequently than not that uh, the the crown doesn't often go to him this is ham's way of trying to make a power grab which is why Canaan uh, the thought goes is cursed there are other hypotheses that that Ham was was taking advantage of Noah's nakedness to, um, you know, injure his father somehow or to disrespect his father to to get this one up on his father. Um, whatever the case may be, uh, Shem and and, and uh, Japheth are both the good sons who care for their father. Um, and uh, Ham here does not. It's not the goal of the Christian to seize power. It's actually the goal of the Christian to clothe the naked, as it says in Matthew 25, which is what Shem and Japheth do here. But it's a strange story, and maybe the best explanation is that Ham's trying to weasel his way in and get more power over his father. And a quick additional note on this. This points out that the flood did not succeed in abolishing sin in the world. And we all know this. We've seen sin's effects on our lives. One question that came in from Paulette W. Thank you for this question, Paulette. Uh, And you've got another one later on in in the podcast. uh, Who did Noah's grandchildren marry? What's going on there? Well, um... yeah, it's, it's the same issue as who did Cain marry and, and who did Adam and Eve's kids marry. Um, there's the idea that they may have had to marry their cousins at this point uh, because there was nobody else. The flood had wiped out all the other people on Earth. Um, and, and this gets at some, some questions about lifespans, which I'm going to return to in a minute. Um, so, so hold on to that idea, but, but you know, put a bookmark in that. Who did Noah's grandchildren marry? Uh, I want to note that in in looking through the genealogies uh, after the flood, uh, the author of Genesis is very careful in naming not just the nations that, that we're going to be looking at in the story of Abram, uh, later to be called Abraham, but the author of Genesis carefully makes a table of all the known nations at this time, tries to trace all of them back to Noah. Uh, this, this project was just not done in other ancient Near Eastern texts, and I think it points to the idea that God is concerned both about the Israelites, uh, who the, the text will begin to focus on with Abraham, but also concerned about the whole known world at this point. Um, we also see the Babel story before we we get to Abram, but uh, we'll we'll come back to Babel. There's some other things we want to talk about there. Uh, going back to these, um, this idea of lifespans. Those of you who are very careful readers may notice that before the flood, there are these massive lifespans of like hundreds and hundreds of years, and then um, as we go from Noah. Uh, down to, like, the Tower of Babel, the lifespans start getting shorter. And then as we go from Babel down to, to Abraham, uh, to, to Abram, they get shorter still. And there are two main theories about this. And, and the first theory goes back to the, the question Paulette asked. Um, and that's this idea of genetic entropy, uh, let me let me break that down. Uh, so, one one idea is that the the human DNA, the human uh, chromosome situation, was free of any mutations and free of any corruption when Adam and Eve uh, were on the earth, and that um, corruptions and mutations began to introduce themselves as people began to to uh, have children and such. But um, because Uh, Adam and Eve's DNA and their chromosomes were relatively free of these corruptions, and I'm not a geneticist. So um, if if you are a geneticist and you can help bring some clarity to this for me, I'd appreciate it. But one idea is that as they began to have children, a few more mutations worked themselves in, but it was a slow process. But then as soon as Noah hit and the flood wiped out all of the genetic variety, suddenly you have Noah and and his family, and that's it for the genetic variety, Um, which means that a lot more mutations are able to be introduced into the genetic material, uh, which then leads to shorter and shorter lifespans. That's one theory, and I've uh, attached an article that gets into that a little bit more. Another theory uh, has to do with um, these, th- this idea of symbolic numbers, that um, the, the pre-flood and post-flood uh, ancestors didn't actually live that many years as we understand. Uh, these numbers are actually more symbolic. They, they have more to do with designating the importance of these people. Uh, I've attached another article that gets into that a little bit more. And, and, and a quick note on that, some folks believe that to take the Bible seriously, you have to take it literally. And I I don't know that I buy that, because sometimes taking the Bible seriously means allowing the Bible to speak in its own native language. And the people uh, who, who were writing at this time didn't always speak literally. It would be a disservice to take the Bible uh, at this time always literally. In fact, if we were to take the Bible literally, well then Shem, Ab- uh, uh, the, the, the forefather of Abram, should still be alive for 210 years after Abram's birth. And that just doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, it, it, to, to think that Shem would have outlived Abram just seems ridiculous. And yet, if we take the ages fully at face value, that's one of the implications that happens. Uh, so the, the idea that seems to make sense to me is that these ages were mostly symbolic, that they show the importance of these ancestors of ours and the faith and these ancestors of ours here in Genesis. Okay, so let's hit the Tower of Babel story. So the Tower of Babel acts as sort of the end of this uh, prehistory Part of Genesis, Genesis one and and begins to pave the way for the story of Abram and, and God's call on Abram, uh, but the Tower of Babel kind of acts as the culmination of the fall. You see, uh, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, uh, the fall uh, breaks trust, breaks relationship between human beings, like on the horizontal level, and between humans and God on the vertical level. Uh, That's what's meant when uh, God says, if you eat of, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Not necessarily that you'll die a physical death, although that's true too, but that your spirit, the, the substance that builds trust and builds relationships, the, the, the idea of human innocence, that's gonna die. And so um, uh, there will be this estrangement from God and from other people. And this lack of trust, this estrangement from other people, when we experience that in community, it ravages community. Any of you who've experienced that estrangement from other people know what I'm talking about. You look at this person who you thought you knew and suddenly it's as if they sprouted another head or if they had been speaking a different language. Like how on earth could you think that that's okay? How on earth could you think that that could be the case? That's what happens more or less, at Babel. It's the, the the living out of the fall where suddenly everybody is speaking different languages. Uh, now, uh, this also uh, manifests itself because uh, God comes down and sort of actively brings this into fruition, but I wanna name that fact that this is the culmination of the fall. Now, the, the story of the Tower of Babel is also, uh, uh, it's, it's a slam. It's designed to be a political slam against Babylon and the Babylonians and their temples. Babylonians would create these ziggurats, um, these, these places of worship, and, and they'd be massive, just huge. Um, and when, when the Israelites uh, began to interact with the Babylonians, when the Babylonians were beginning to be a threat uh, later on in, in, in David's time and beyond, uh, the Israelites did not like the Babylonians um, they they didn't like them at all and so, um, this this story uh, that, that takes place in sort of the area where Babylon would eventually become a city, this story kind of pokes fun at these ziggurats. And there's this interesting wordplay between the Hebrew word uh, 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 where, where, where God says, I, I need to confuse their language or we need to confuse their language. That Hebrew word is Balal, which sounds a lot like Babel, uh, which is uh, what the capital city of Babylon would, would then be called. So there's this this uh, this tale that that tells of why humans speak in different languages. Also serves as as a political slam on on one of Israel's enemies, which I think is just poetry at its finest. It's it's very well written. Uh, Paulette W also asked a question about uh, what's going on with this first person plural uh, with God asking, well, you know, or saying, "Come, let us do X Y Z. Let us confuse their languages." Um, uh, what's God doing with this "us"? Uh, There's three ideas here. There's the idea of of, of Trinitarian relations, that God is speaking to the other members of the Trinity. Another idea is God's using the royal we, uh, that God is referring to, you know, let us go and do. Um, uh, excuse me. I said three ideas. There's four ideas. Uh, the third idea is that this is an, uh, this is a, a relic of the Hebrew term for God being a plural term. Uh, so subject-verb agreement requires God, uh, Elohim is the Hebrew word, to have a plural verb. And then finally, the fourth idea is that God, uh, in, in, in the Hebrew understanding, God had uh, a number of angels and other folks in God's divine counsel that God would interact with. You might think of it similar to the Greek pantheon, where God is sort of the big God overseeing everything, but has these angels and other uh, divine powers that, that work for him. Now, we don't understand it that way now, uh, but, but there's some evidence to suggest that Abram and, and his folks may have understood it in that way. We're going to wrap up with looking at three major stories with Abram after God calls Abram in Genesis 12. So we have the story of the famine, sending him along with Sarai to Egypt. And and this is a story that gets played out three times in Genesis. It happens again with Abram and Sarai. uh, And then it happens with Abram's son. And uh, the author of Genesis is not necessarily condoning Abram's actions here. And I want to spell that out quickly. But the author of Genesis, I think, does intend for this to be foreshadowing of what will happen in Exodus where God's people uh, will go down to, uh, to Egypt because of a famine. Uh, Pharaoh will take something of, of, of God's people, will enslave them. Uh, there will be plagues that happen, and, and then Pharaoh will send them away after the plagues. Uh, this, this is uh, a beautiful piece of foreshadowing here, and it happened several times, so be on the lookout for that. Um, after, after this, and after this sister-wife debacle, uh Abram goes and and talks with Lot Lot's his nephew um and he and Lot both are are growing in in number of cattle and sheep that they have and and growing in in the size of their families and they're kind of stepping on each other's feet but there are these ...other folks in the land that they're herding their sheep in who uh, don't really want them there. And so Abram, uh, being shrewd, he, he, he goes and talks to Lot and says, look... And yeah, I'm, I'm reconstructing the conversation a little bit. He says, look, we don't want to be at each other's throats, um, because if we are, then we leave ourselves open to all these other folks in the land uh, who will come and, and, and take us out. So let's let's divide this amongst ourselves. Why don't you go one way? I'll go the other. And since I'm pitching this idea to you, why don't you decide? Well... A lot decides on these, um, this, this lower uh, valley area where Sodom and Gomorrah are, and that'll be important later. Um, at this point, uh, everybody who's reading Genesis has heard of Sodom, uh, and so they know what Lot's choice portends. Uh, so we'll revisit that later once we get to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. But uh, Abram is, is shrewd and, and, and thoughtful, kind to his nephew here. In chapter 14, we see Abram as, as like this great military leader uh, who's willing to uh, uh, put all of his resources into uh, coming and rescuing Lot from the clutches of these four kings. And, uh, and, and he does. And on, on his way back, as he's returning, he encounters Melchizedek. Uh, Melchizedek uh, uh, gets a shout-out in the Psalms and also in the book, the epistle to the Hebrews um, as someone who is—he um, uh, takes on a very special particular role. He's the first priest-king we see. And uh, in, in so many ways, uh, David will be the heir apparent to Melchizedek. And the, the heir of David, the Messiah, will be the, the total fulfillment of the promise that Melchizedek offers. Uh, so, so Melchizedek comes and blesses Abram in the name of God Most High. Um, and, and Abram takes this idea and runs with it, understanding God Most High to be the Lord who spoke to him, who called him. Um, and Melchizedek, like King David would be years later, uh, centuries later even, is the king of Salem. Uh, Salem means peace. Salem is also an old term for the city we know as Jerusalem. All of this uh, just begins to scratch the surface of Abram's story. Uh, I hope that um, you uh, have gotten involved already in the story of Abram. uh, And uh, in the next few chapters, his story is gonna take a turn. Um, it's, It's exciting stuff. And seeing how God brings God's promises to fruition despite human foibles is absolutely magnificent. So as you read, May God bless you in your reading of Scripture.